found a podcast where you'll hear the truth and we will praise jesus name we stand for the bible and won't back down from it although it don't bring much fame some folks will like it some will try to deny it but god's word will always stand true it's been tried in the fire still Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King. And I'm the host of this study, Donnie King. This is Monday, August the 15th, episode number 77, Sins of Omissions, James chapter 4, verses 17 through chapter 5, verse 5. On this podcast, we study the Bible according to how it was written in the original language, Greek and Hebrew, and how it was translated in the English in the King James Version. In our last installment of Systematic Theology, Brother Donnie and Brother Chris Lee began a two-part series concerning the church. They described what the church is, what it should be, and a host of other elements that the church entails. In this seemingly easy-to-understand topic, there are numerous complexities that need to be brought out. If we are part of the church, it just follows that we should know what that means and what this includes. We believe you will find this episode very informative. In today's episode, we learn what sins of omission are, and then we get into chapter 5 and several rebukes of rich men and their evil deeds. James accuses those rich men of fraud, keeping back their hard-earned money. He says they live in pleasure while slaughtering these poor laborers by refusing to give them their wages. The cries of these men have now entered into the ears of the Lord, which implies judgment will come upon them. There are many things to take away from this study. And now, for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson of today, I'll turn it to the host of this podcast, our pastor, Brother Donnie King. Well, thank you for tuning in with us today. We're looking forward to getting into this episode. We're going to cover a lot of powerful verses here in James chapter 4, verse 17, going into chapter 5 to verse 5, so we might as well get started with that. We're going to go ahead and get started with verse 17 of chapter 4, James 4 and 17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Now, this verse is very familiar to all of us, but I believe it's been abused, misused, even misinterpreted, and often misunderstood. First, I'd like to prove that this is not a disjointed thought solely from James, but it's backed up by Jesus, by Peter, by Paul, and by this man that we've been studying under, James, right here. I want to look at several portions of scripture here from all of these authors and see exactly what's being said. Luke 12, verse 47 and 48. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. Going into John 9 and 41, And Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. John 15 and 22, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Second Peter 2 and 21, For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, The dog has turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. 
Romans 1, verse 20 and 21. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Dropping down to verse 32. Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. 1 Timothy 1 and 13, Paul talking about himself says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So now we're looking at several different scriptures that speak the same thing. And even Luke 12 and 48 and here in 1 Timothy 1 and 13, they both carry the same thought of obtaining innocence through the lack of knowledge, which is really the exact opposite of the other scriptures. The other scriptures imply, imply that whether you are innocent, whether you knew it or whether you didn't, you were guilty. So basically, the whole New Testament supports the main idea within this verse found here in the book of James. Now, I'm going to share the original transliteration straight from the Greek to English. To him knowing, therefore good to do, and not doing it, sin to him it is. If you know that there is good that needs to be done, but you refuse to do it, it is a sin to that person. The key word in this whole verse really is no, and it's the Greek word oida. Oida is in the perfect tense. It describes a completed action that occurred in the past. The action might have occurred in the past, but it produces a state of being that exists right now in the present time. This means that the knowledge of which James is speaking is something that they have known for a certain amount of time, and he believed that they were still very much aware of it. This knowing speaks of their cognitive skills, which means that the writer knows the audience is definitely aware of what he's talking about. James felt certain that the people understood the implications of what he was saying, which is how he was deeming them guilty of sin. What is James speaking about, though? Is he saying that in every instance you know you could do a little more or do a little better, you have committed a sin? Is he saying that if you have to be at a meeting in five minutes and you're four minutes away and you see someone broke down on the side of the road and you refuse to help them, have you sinned? Is that what he's saying? He is specifically speaking of those who were stating that they were going to a certain city to make gains off of the people there, and they were boasting and bragging about it. This is what he mentioned was evil, this kind of boasting. This evil boasting led them into sin because they knew better but failed to do better. When your knowledge doesn't lead you to do right, what good is your knowledge? This is intrinsically linked back to the hearers and the doers that we've already studied so many times here in the book of James. When you know those things that are right and you know that which is wrong and then you fail to do right, that means you have done the wrong. This is how these people were guilty of sin. Their great faith in God was not enough. They still had no works that went along with their profession of faith. Hearers possess knowledge, especially the knowledge of what they have heard. If you fail to act on the knowledge that you have been given, then you're guilty of sin. Sins of omission usually will always lead into sins of commission. If you fail to do that which is right, you have inevitably done that which is wrong in turn. As a doer hears the word, because of his knowledge, he does what he has heard. This clears him of any guilt or sin. And this also links us back to James 3 and the tongue once again. 
if this person was not boasting of what they could do, would do, will do, can do, if they were not boasting of what they are doing, what they're going to do, they would not be in this shape right now. They ought to be rejoicing in Jesus Christ, but they had already started moving on to making it rich, to being somebody and showing favoritism. Knowing this, we're now ready to go into James chapter five. Well, what do you know? The first person James addresses in chapter five is rich men. What a coincidence. James five and one. Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Just as he did in James 4 and 13, James uses a phrase that was common in his day, go to now. This should be seen as a call for those he is speaking unto to pay attention. It can be loosely interpreted to mean, listen up right now, pay attention right here. James is vying for the attention of all those who were rich among his audience. Rich here is the Greek word plausios, and it means to be wealthy, and it means to have an abundance. This verse has connections with Luke 6 and 24 and with 1 Timothy 6 and 9. I'll read those to you. But woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. He tells them to weep and howl, which are the Greek words klio and olazio. These words are similar, meaning to weep, to cry, to wail, and to cry out loud. The distinction, though, between these words is that the sense behind weep is to cry profusely from sadness or distress. The sense behind the word howl means to weep loudly for a long time. Now, these words definitely give the idea of terrible sorrow, and the sorrow is worded as miseries. It's the Greek word talapores. Talapores means distress, trouble, misery, hardship. Now, the sense behind the word here is that the person has become ill from all of their afflictions and misfortune. Just think on that for just a little bit. A person could have so much trouble that it makes them become physically ill. But wait a minute. You mean to tell me that rich people have troubles too? I thought it was only poor people who was full of trouble. Rich people can fall into distress? How in the world can a rich person face hardship? Rich people can become ill from their afflictions and misfortunes that come their way? James answers all of these questions in the next few verses, but could I go ahead and give you a quick answer? Yes. James 5 and 2, he says, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Now, if I were to list all of the encouraging verses from the Bible, I have a feeling that this verse wouldn't quite make the top 10. As a matter of fact, it probably wouldn't even be on the list. James is offering a description of the hardship and misery that these rich people were facing right at this time he's writing. This verse is basically the opposite of Matthew 6 and 20 because Jesus was teaching them against laying up treasures. These people were guilty of laying up treasure or riches in abundance. This word speaks of things with great value. He tells them that their treasures are corrupted, which is the Greek word sepo. Sepo means that they have decayed and they have rotted. This means that they have become putrid. They've been rendered as useless. Then he tells them that their garments are also moth-eaten. Garments is the Greek word hamation. Hamation denotes the outer garments, and it can mean fine apparel, or it can just simply mean clothing in general. When he declares that their garments are moth-eaten, that takes my mind back to Job chapter 13, verse 28. And he, as a rotten thing, consumeth as a garment that is moth-eaten. 
we have a definite mention of something rotten and garments that are moth-eaten here in Job 13 and 28. So it correlates perfectly with James 5 and 2. James takes this thought a little farther in James 5 and 3. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. So now not only has the rich man's riches become corrupt and rotten, and not only has his garments become moth-eaten, now we find that his gold and his silver have cankered. James is showing us the folly of hoarding food, clothing, and money here in James chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Their food rotted, their clothing had been eaten by moths, and their money has now rusted and corroded. The Greek word for cankered is katio. Katio means to become rusty, to become corroded, or to be tarnished. James said that this rust or corrosion has become a witness against them, but he uses a most interesting word for rust here. It is the Greek word eos. Eos means poison or venom. Let me show you two other verses that use this word and let you see how they're translated in Romans 3 and 13 first and then James 3 and 8 secondly. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. This corrosion has something to do with the venom of a snake bite or the poison that a person could get a hold of that becomes deadly. Their riches are somehow connected with the danger of the tongue, which might be a little hard to discern at first, but there's no doubt of there being a connection to that right here. The implication here is that the rich people have allowed their riches to sit there and rot rather than to give anything to the poor and needy. Let me read you this from Matthew 6 and 19 through 20. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doeth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doeth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. The connection appears to be that the tongue is poisonous in itself and that the greediness of the rich man stems from a heart that has been poisoned with sin. These things have become a witness and a testimony against them as the Greek martyrion is defined. James gives his assessment of why these people are the way that they are. Then we see that he accuses them of heaping up treasure. He says that they're storing it up for the last days. Now, to me, that sounds familiar to what Paul said in Romans 2 and 5 when he spoke of them storing up wrath towards the judgment of God. Listen to this. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. This points us back to a religious idea. And what I mean by that is that they were being greedy with what they had, storing it up for themselves. Their excuse, though, was that they were getting ready for the last days. I'm storing it up for another day. It's for the end of time. You never know what you might face. You could say that these rich people were living as if Jesus was never coming back, but telling everybody they were waiting for his coming. We know that that's a very common thing today as well. As a matter of fact, this is the word eschatos. Eschatos is the word from which we get eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things, last times, or as we're more familiar with it, the end times. Interestingly enough, this same word is also translated as lowest. We see this in Luke 14, verses 9 through 10, where Jesus is rebuking them for doing the same things that James rebukes his audience for as well. Listen to this. And he that bade thee and him come say unto thee, give this man place and thou begin with shame to take the lowest, the eschatos room. 
But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, eschatos, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher. Then thou shalt have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. Knowing this, they could have been saving their treasures and their riches for low times, if it also means low, as Luke uses it here. This sounds like a really good reason to me, other than the fact that rich people seldom have low times. You don't need another million dollars for a rainy day if you already have five million set aside. James doesn't seem to be a fan of this kind of thinking. As we enter into the next verse, verse 4, we begin to see why he's been saying what he said. Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them that have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. James begins this verse by talking about the workers who reaped in the fields. They have not been given their wages. Their hire, or as the Greek misthos is defined, is reward in Mark 9 and 41. It's wages in John 4 and 36, and it also means their pay. And all of this, their hire, their reward, their wages, their pay, had been held back from them by these rich people. We see this explained in Leviticus 19 and 13 and Jeremiah 22 and 13 as well. Let me read you this. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. Jeremiah 22 and 13, Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages, and giveth him not for his work. The word laborers here that James uses is the Greek word ergates. Ergates means worker in Luke 13, 27. It's translated as workman in Matthew 10 and 10, and it also can mean occupation in Acts 19 and 25. These workers had reaped, or as the Greek word amayo means, they had harvested, they had mowed, or they had swathed grain. They did this in the fields. And so we realize that this can also mean the Greek word kora interprets district, region, land, country, or ground. These laborers had performed work, and it was a specific work. They had reaped the land, but they had never received their pay. And James is accusing these rich people of fraud. He says, you've kept back or defrauded these workers. Fraud is the Greek word aposterio. Aposterio means to cheat, to defraud, to steal, to keep back, and to be destitute. Let me show you a scripture where that's used. 1 Timothy 6 and 5, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness from such withdraw thyself. Now, this carries the sense that you've caused someone to not possess something that they are owed. I want you to notice who or what it is that's crying here. James says it's the hire or the wages of these workers that is cried unto the Lord. When James goes into the second half of this verse, though, he says the cries of them and here, them is the laborers this time. So God is telling us that even inanimate objects can cry out to him, and people can. This has given us the sense that God sees everything. God hears everything. God knows everything. So now we see that the hire and the workers have cried out to God about this wrongdoing. James said that they cry, they cry out, they call out, they shout, they bawl, as the Greek word krazo is interpreted. Only three words later, we have the word cries after we see cry mentioned in the same verse. Here, cries is a different Greek word altogether. It's boi. Boi means to shout out a battle cry. It means a cry for war. This is the only place boi is found in scripture. 
But it's also reminiscent of Deuteronomy 24 and 15. Listen to this verse. At his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor, and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. I have no doubt James is referring to this specific principle that God laid out in Deuteronomy 24 and 15. The word reaped is used twice here in James 5 and 4, and the second use of it is different than the first. The second word for reaped is therizzo. Therizzo comes from the word therme, of which means heat. This might seem a little confusing at first, but it really shouldn't be when you think about it. This implies those who work in the heat of the day, those gathering grain in the heat. So in reality, it speaks of those who do summer work. He says those who have worked in the heat of summer went unpaid, and now their cries has entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. This is just another way of saying the Old Testament name, the Lord of hosts, which also interprets as the Lord of armies. It describes the head over a great army, the Almighty. This word is found often in the Old Testament, but it's only found here and in Romans 9 and 29. Let me read you that. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been made like unto Gomorrah. Now, this is taken directly from Isaiah 1 and 9. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we would have been like unto Gomorrah. Interestingly enough, it's interpreted as hosts instead of Sabaoth in the original passage, which is the actual meaning of the Lord of Sabaoth. It's the Lord of hosts. I'm sure that all of you can plainly see the sense here, but allow me to state it in case someone has missed it. The Lord who is over the armies of heaven has heard the cry of these who have been done wrong. This gives us the idea that the Lord is about to avenge those who have been done wrong and those who were mistreated. Those who have defrauded these workers are the rich people, and this is why they should be weeping, wailing, and howling. They're about to face the judgment of God. It's very possible that these rich people were made rich by withholding the wages of laborers who have worked for them. James speaks directly to them in the next verse. Let's read that, James 5 and 5. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. James proclaims that these rich people have lived in pleasure while here on the earth, which insinuates there might just be a change when they leave the earth. He says that they have trafael. Trafael is the Greek word which is interpreted to be self-indulgent, to revel. It's characterized by excess. It speaks of someone who has lived with a lack of moderation, specifically in their bodily appetites. A couple of examples are found in Job 21 and 13 and Luke 16 and 19. They spend their days in wealth and in a moment go down to the grave. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. The phrase stating that they have been wanton is very similar in the Greek. It is spatileo. Spatileo means to live luxuriously. It means to live for self-gratification, and it means to live in comfort. It carries the sense of someone who lives softly. It also describes spoiled children who have never had to work for anything. And if you think about this, this is very possible here. James is speaking of someone who owns land or fields, and they have laborers doing the work for them. Not only this, but when payday came, these spoiled children cheated the workers out of their wages. Let me read you Ezekiel 34 and 3. Ye eat the fat, and ye clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. 
Not only had they beat these laborers out of their wages, but in the meantime, they had nourished themselves. They allowed them to go without while they sat right there and ate in front of them. While they made themselves fat, the others were starving to death. How wicked and cruel could someone be? The most confusing part of this verse to me is that they nourished their hearts as in a day of slaughter. Now, what does that mean? To understand this phrase better, we need to define the word slaughter. Slaughter is the Greek word sphagi. Sphagi is defined as killing a helpless animal, and it's specifically used to specify a ritual slaying. This gives us two meanings, and neither of them are good. Number one, they were allowing these workers to go without pay, which means that they went without food. They were eating and nourishing themselves while starving out or slaughtering those who labored for them. Secondly, this implies that these rich men were acting as priests. Now think about this for just a moment. You can tell this was meant because of their power and their position. They were slaughtering their laborers as lambs. They were eating them in order to nourish their own selves. As the rich ate food bought with the wages owed to the workers, they were making themselves fat off of those who were doing without. These people were either literally dying of starvation or figuratively dying. Either way, the punishment is going to be severe for these rich people. Knowing all of this, it provides us with a good segue into the next verse, but we won't get to that until next Monday, Lord willing. All right. Very good teaching today, Pastor. Uh, we got a question here for you. Are you ready for it? I think I am. Depends on what we have, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think you are. What did Jesus mean in John 21 when he asked the disciples if they had any meat? Okay, let's go back to the setting. Let's go to John 21, and let's see. It's right here, verse 5, where that direct statement is. And what it is is the disciples have gone out fishing. They don't know what to do now that Jesus is not with them every day. And they go fishing. And as they're fishing, they couldn't catch anything. And then Jesus from the shore cries out to them. And the Bible says in verse 4, the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus saith unto them, children, have you any meat? They answered him, no. They understood him to be asking them, have you caught any fish? You got anything to eat? And so we know that they fished all night. He knew they fished all night. We read that they caught nothing. Jesus knew they had fished all night and hadn't caught anything. Was Jesus being sarcastic to them? Not really. Was Jesus asking them, hey, I'm hungry. Y'all got something to eat? No, not really. There was something else that was going on here. As a matter of fact, I believe that he was showing them that he was sufficient enough to supply for them. Because if you read on down, he tells them where to cast the net and they cast it and they find. And so they pulled up the net and it, they had caught a great draught of fish, the Bible said. The Bible specifically says there was 153 fish in their net. And this lake of Gennesaret had been known for having only 153 different types of species of fish. This particular body of water had the same amount of species of fish in it that there was total fish that these disciples caught. It makes me wonder if Jesus didn't allow them to catch one of every fish that was in that lake just to show them who he was and prove to them he can do anything and he can supply for their need. So we read this and they come to the land. They bring the fish they had caught. But by the time they get there, Jesus has fish on the coals of fire 
and he has bread. And he says, bring of the fish which you have now caught. And so they drew it to the land. And verse 11 says they caught 153, for there were so many, yet the net was not broken. But Jesus didn't take of their fish. He said, come and dine. And by this time, every one of the disciples in verse 12 knew it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh, taketh bread, giveth them and fish likewise. So he asked them, do you have any meat? But he already had meat. So why did Jesus ask this seemingly odd question? Well, I want to point us back to John chapter 4, where Jesus told the disciples at another time that he had meat to eat of that they knew not of. He had just been talking to a Samaritan woman. He stopped to rest at a well, and there just so happened to be this woman that come along who's been married five times and is now living with another man. And as she comes, they begin to talk, and Jesus begins to tell her that she needs this living water. And as the disciples come back from town, the woman is leaving, and Jesus is left there. And they begin to ask him what was going on. And the the disciples told him and said, Master, why don't you eat? And he said unto them in John 4 and 32, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore the disciples said one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? And Jesus saith unto them in verse 34, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now I want you to think on that for just a moment. Jesus asked the disciples, Do you have any meat? And the only other passage in John that mentions the same wording, Jesus says his meat is to do the will of the Father. So when he asked the disciples, did they have any meat? He was actually asking them, do you really know the will of God for your lives? Think about what they were doing. This is the whole reason they were back out on the boat fishing again. They didn't know what to do with themselves. They go out to do what was familiar to them. And Jesus asked them, do you know what the will of God is for your life? I called you to be fishers of men, not fishermen. So can I ask our listeners today, do you have any meat? Good answer, Pastor. Proven again that God has everything we need, no matter what it is. He has a solution. Yes. Remember, friends, if you have a Bible question that you'd like an answer to, drop us an email. DK Ministries, 1977 at yahoo.com. That's DK Ministries, 1977 at yahoo.com. We'll get you a biblical answer. We hope you've enjoyed our podcast today, sharing God's word. But until next time. May God bless you all. Be sure and come back Friday for our special episode number 43. Why did they rise early? I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there, cause I'm walking in Jesus' name. Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name. I'm going where he bid me go. I'm dressing and talking like you want me to. He's a keeper of my soul. I have learned to lean on Jesus and cast on him my ever concern. I'm looking for a home and glory where no sorrow will ever.